The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. And uh, we come to that God's Word this morning as we go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, let's go together to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You can find that on page 553 of your Pew Bible. Uh, and we are finishing chapter 1 this morning. So uh, let's go there together. This is our third week uh, in this new sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I'm thankful that, that you have not been chased away by this book. Hopefully you're being compelled by this book. Uh, the metaphor that I want to give to you for the book of Ecclesiastes this morning is that uh, 3D movies have taken on a new iteration. Uh, many of you remember 3D movies in, in which the original iteration you had to wear those uh, paper glasses, right, with the blue and red uh, film on them. Now, if you go to a 3D movie, they give you hard plastic 3D glasses, right? Times have really advanced in terms of how 3D glasses are made up. But if you were to watch a 3D movie without the glasses, you would see the picture, but you would also see that the image isn't very clear and it's strange so that if you had the glasses, it would come to life in the fullness of its picture, but without the glasses, it, it, it looks somewhat okay, but not very understandable. Well, a blurred and confusing picture of a 3D movie without the proper glasses is like the book of Ecclesiastes if you don't have the right lenses on to understand what you're looking at. And attempting to read the book of Ecclesiastes without these essential lenses really repels people and, and, and they say, I can't believe this is in the Bible. But when you understand the lenses that you need to have to read it, it will start to make sense. So we need to be equipped with this understanding. And we've been trying to do that early on as we kind of establish what is the preacher doing in this book. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher assembles the congregation, and this is not necessarily a religious congregation, but it is a gathering of all kinds of people from all sorts of walks of life and different backgrounds, and he is assembling them together and saying, let's talk about life. And the key phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes is, let's talk about life under the sun. And the emphasis of wanting to talk about life under the sun is let's have a frank conversation about life from an entirely horizontal perspective, an entirely secular perspective. Let's talk about life under the sun, east of Eden, as we sweat and toil and labor in the difficulties of this world, not factoring in God. That's very important. And as the preacher is doing that, he is saying, let's, let's set aside all thoughts about God and just talk about this life. And the reason why he's doing that is because as a rhetorical strategy, he is intending to lead us down all these sorts of different roads, demonstrating that at the end of that road, there is a dead end. So that at the end, he can say there is only one real road to joy, happiness, peace, fulfillment, pleasure, and all the rest. 
There's only one. And along the way, you feel like you're just running into dead end after dead end, and that's the point. So you have to have patience with the book of Ecclesiastes. You have to have a lot of patience. We will see, actually, this morning, and you might say you're just contradicting yourself, there will be a reference to God in our text in Ecclesiastes this morning. But just as a quick aside, uh, it is not the covenant name of God in Hebrew. In Hebrew, uh, the name for God is Yahweh. That's what Israel called God because God told His people, call me by my name. It's Yahweh. But the God reference in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes is the name Elohim, which is a general reference to God. Just that He's out there somewhere. Maybe. We want to put on the proper lenses as we understand the book of Ecclesiastes this morning as we consider the preacher's conversation about the meaning of life. So, let's pray and ask the true and living God's blessing upon His Word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to Your Word, and we do so humbly and with uh, a very much conscious that we need Your help, Lord, we need the guidance of Your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and give understanding. Lord, as You so revealed Your Word here we pray, reveal it again to us within our souls, within our minds, within our hearts, that we might be a true people of the true God. Lord, in the midst of uh, a world that is uh, filled to the brim with anxieties and hopelessness and sorrow, uh, Lord, lift us to your true presence and light through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, let's hear the Word of God from Ecclesiastes 1, starting at verse 12, through the end of the chapter, under the heading, The Vanity of Wisdom. This is the Word of God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write eternal truth on our hearts and uh, invite you to keep your Bible open there as we go with the preacher uh, on his journey. It's very much what uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is as a journey. Now, when you see titles like The Meaning of Life, right? That's such an all-encompassing thought, such an all-encompassing title. Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is the 1983 film by the British sketch comedy group Monty Python. For those of you who are into that, you would laugh. For those of you who are not, that totally misses you. But everybody, regardless of what you think about 
Monty Python. Everybody has thoughts, questions, uh, ponderings about this grand question, what is the meaning of life? And people like to chase different avenues through which they answer that question. Some people answer that question through supernatural means, religious and spiritual means. Uh, I was uh, hearing on the news podcast that I listened to that the great uh, trend uh, among uh, spiritually interested people is uh, the discipline of manifesting. I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that means and I'm fascinated by it. But people try to make sense of their life through spiritual means by self-manifesting and they might find it in other kinds of world religions. They might find it in Christianity, which is good and right and helpful. Or they might say, I don't want to take a supernatural understanding of the world. I want to take an exclusively naturalistic view of the world and the meaning of life must be inherent in the creation itself. So if I want to find meaning, I will study it in the natural world and come to my conclusion. Some supernaturalism, some people have naturalism and other people have a worldview of uh, pure nihilism which means that there is no meaning anyway so just stop talking about it and get on with your day. Now, I venture to guess that you might know people of the full spectrum of opinions on that. Different people answer the question, what is the meaning of life, differently. I have a very vivid memory of my senior year in college when uh, there were many different religious groups uh, on campus, but there was a new religious group that had just signed a new charter, and there was all sorts of excitement about it and posters advertising it. The Illinois College Atheist Group was filed under the religious uh, groups, and when they had their very first meeting, I attended. And I attended out of genuine curiosity and interest, uh, and, and my, my presence as I walked into the room was met with a little bit of skepticism and side glances because I was the president of the Illinois College Christian Student Organization. So what is that guy doing here, right? I was just genuinely curious, genuinely fascinated. I remember walking into the room and catching those side glances and then just kind of taking a chair amongst everybody else and just listening, listening to questions, listening to arguments, listening to insights and objections and thoughts about the way the world works. And uh, it was totally, you know, genial, friendly. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you more about that in, in just a moment. But it was fascinating to get more inside the minds of other people beyond just me and my own thoughts. And here's the thing about the book of Ecclesiastes for you as a Christian believer, is that you might be totally convinced about everything that you believe, which is great. And you might be someone who genuinely convinced but has some questions. But by and large, you have plenty of people in your life who are not convinced actually about anything. And they're fascinated and they're curious. And we have this kind of weird social rule that I actually think is expiring in our culture, that it's faux pas to discuss religion and spiritualism. Actually, people want to talk about these things. Now, you may have rules about, you know, whether at work or at school or things like that, but people want to have these conversations. And by conversations, I mean people want to express themselves to you and have you just listen to them and say, that's interesting, tell me more about what you think about that. Not trying to cut them off, not trying to argue with them, not trying to correct them, but just listening to the way you think about the world. Well, in this passage, the preacher is representing a view and perspective of the world 
that we need to understand and have interest in. In this particular passage, the preacher, in this kind of autobiographical way, introduces himself as Solomon, the wise and wealthy king. Now, the big reason why people assume that Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon is because of this section, but the writer of Ecclesiastes is writing to represent himself as Solomon for a very particular reason. So when you see in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and also in verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. We conclude that you know, here's a king in Jerusalem who is very wise. You say that, that sounds like the biblical character of Solomon, but Solomon lived some 600 years likely before this book is written. And when we read the description and say, you know, that sounds like Solomon, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, that's exactly what I want you to think. I want you to think about Solomon here for a moment. I want you to think of Solomon and consider his point that he is making. Why? Because Solomon is known in the Bible as the wisest man to ever live. The wisest man in all of history. Let me give you a few references to the wisdom of Solomon. Listen for just a moment about the description of Solomon in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, Solomon asked of God to be wise, and God granted it to him. In 1 Kings 3, verse 12, it says, Behold, I give you, Solomon, a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever been before, and none like you shall arise after you. 1 Kings chapter 4, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, so that Solomon's wisdom surpasses the wisdom of all the people of the East and all of the wisdom of Egypt and people and nations came to hear the wisdom of Israel's great king, Solomon. And finally, in 1 Kings 10, it says, Thus Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. So, who is the wisest man to ever live? Solomon. So, preacher of Ecclesiastes says, let me speak to you as Solomon here for a moment and talk to you about wisdom and talk to you about the meaning of life because, the preacher says, I've been on a journey and I've been on a journey to find out especially two things here in this text. I have been trying to figure out the meaning of life through gaining, attaining, compiling wisdom. I want to be smart enough to outsmart the way of the world and figure everything out so that everything makes sense to me. That's what we find here in the text. Verse 13 says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Meaning, I want to use the tool of wisdom to figure everything out. To absolutely figure everything out. And the everything that he attempts to figure out comes through two ways. And the first one is, first of all, everything under heaven. So the preacher is going to use wisdom to figure out all of life. Again, in verse 13, it says, all that is done under heaven. He wants to have comprehensive knowledge about everything. Let me tell you about a man named Daniel Tammet. Daniel Tammet is a living person. He's a real person. He has epilepsy and autism and is a mathematical savant. 
On March 14, 2004, Daniel Tammet broke the European record for reciting pi from memory. What is pi? Pi is the mathematical constant of the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. I knew that, I forgot it, I had to look it up, right? But you know what I'm talking about, 3.14159, and on and on and on. Well, Daniel Tammet recited pi, and he had, every, he had people checking him. He recited the digits of pi for five hours and nine minutes, perfectly reciting 22,514 digits of pi. And that sounds impressive until we realize that in 2019, Google calculated an additional nine trillion digits of pi, bringing the known total of pi to 31.4 trillion digits. And the world record is 22,000 some odd of 31.4 trillion. That's just one illustration of the limitation and the capacity, the limited capacity of human wisdom. The reason why I share that is because Daniel Tammet is a very reflective person. He writes this in his autobiography. He writes about being a teenager, lying on the floor of his room, staring up at the ceiling. Did you do that as a teenager? Lying on the floor, staring up at his ceiling. He said, I was trying to picture the universe in my head, to have a concrete understanding of what everything was. In my mind, I traveled to the edges of existence and looked over them, wondering what I would find. In that instant, I felt really unwell and I could feel my heart beating hard inside of me because for the first time, I had realized that thought and logic had limits and could only take me so far. This realization frightened me and it took me a long time to come to terms with it. And that's what the preacher is talking about here. What is the limit of human wisdom? Can I, through my wisdom, gain so much knowledge that I have comprehensive understanding and therefore elevate myself to the status of the ultimate being? This preacher takes a lifetime to come to terms with the reality and what is his conclusion about everything under the sun? Everything under the sun, he says, it is in verse 13, an unhappy business. An unhappy business. His conclusion about all of life, his conclusion about everything that is done under the sun is that it is an unhappy business. And why is that? Verse 14 says, because it's all vanity. It's just a striving after the wind, meaning the searching out of all things by pursuing wisdom is a futile pursuit that results in nothing. And he proves it with a proverb in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What does this mean? What does this mean? This is important for us to understand because the preacher is here reflecting a view of the world that many people have, meaning you can't change the way the world is. The world is the way it is. We can't change it. There is not enough wisdom in the world to make straight what is crooked. That's what the proverb is talking about. There are things that are crooked in the world and we cannot make them straight. And you know what the children's favorite question is? What is the child's favorite question? Why? Why? And adults, that's their favorite question too. Why? What the preacher is doing is reflecting a view of the world that says the world is the way it is and our response is, but why is it that way? Why is it that way? 
Listen very carefully. There are simply things that you do not understand, right? And there are things that will not make sense to you ever in this life. You know that, right? The preacher of Ecclesiastes says, I want you to reflect on that for a moment. Get serious about it. There are things in life that are crooked that will not be straight. Why is it that a tornado comes, destroys this house, and the neighbor's house is relatively fine? Why? Why does cancer come to me and my family? Sometimes twice in the same person. Why? Right? Why do good people seem to be magnets for bad things? Why do these things happen, right? Are you following the train of thought? The preacher is saying, look, there are crooked realities in this life and we cannot make straight what is crooked, meaning you're not going to reason your way through this. You will not reason your way by searching out wisdom to make sense of this life. It's an unhappy business, meaning it's badly made. It's of small worth, poor, contemptible, evil. The preacher says life is an unhappy business. God has given to man to be busy with, meaning to be troubled about, to keep busy with. This language that uh, life is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with is the equivalent of apologize educators, the infamous substitute teacher who just comes to give you busy work. And you say, why am I doing this? Right? You're just babysitting me and keeping me busy. And the preacher says, yeah, God, God's done that to us in life. Right? We're just spinning our wheels, keeping ourselves busy. Why is it this way? Why is it this way? When the preacher says it is unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, you and I need to understand something essential about the Christian worldview. Understand something essential about the way we see the world. Why is it this way God has given to the children of man to the children of man? What is the word man in the Old Testament? It is the word Adam. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is referencing something here. Referencing what God has given to the children of Adam. And the book of Ecclesiastes is painfully honest about the reality of life east of Eden. The fact that we live in a Genesis 3 world. It's one thing to understand that intellectually, right? We live in a fallen world and it's cursed because of sin. But it is another thing entirely to feel the weight of the curse of sin in our lives. To live a life under the sun, scarred with suffering, overflowing with oppression, filled with injustice, crawling with crime, polluted with impurity. And some people say, some people say about this type of world, well, that's just the way it is, right? It is what it is. It is what it is. Woody Allen has this famous line in his movie, Annie Hall, when he says, you know, to me, life is divided into the horrible and the miserable. That's the only two categories people fit in. The horrible and the miserable. The horrible people, the horrible things that happen to them, they're the terminal cases. I don't know how they get through life. It's amazing to me. And the miserable is everybody else. So if you're miserable, you should be thankful that you're not horrible because you're very lucky to be miserable. Woody Allen says, look, that's just the way life is. It is what it is. And our response to that and our response to the preacher should be one of 
raging disagreement that says that's not the way it should be. The way of life that looks at the world with all of its suffering and all of its sorrow and people just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, huh, well, something deep inside you as a Christian should say, no, we were not made for that type of world. And when we say that, we're agreeing with the Apostle Paul when he says in Romans 8 that one day the creation is going to be set free from its bondage because we live in a world that is shackled with the guilt and shame of our sin and corruption and it's not going to be this way forever. But the preacher says, look, no, it's crooked, can't make it straight. And what's lacking can't be counted, verse 15. If you don't have it, you can't add it up and consider it profit, meaning you can't take wisdom and add up all your wisdom and therefore make sense of the world. That's why he says, it's just vanity. Breath, worthless, mist, vapor, fleeting, elusive life of ours. We cannot, even with all the human wisdom in the world, change the reality that the world is a fallen place. There is not enough wisdom in all the world to reverse the curse. So it's a dead end. So the preacher says, well, instead of just wisdom then, not only am I going to pursue wisdom in and of itself, I'm going to find out. Verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has, made, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So I'm going to do something else. In verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Meaning, he says, I'm going to pursue wisdom and I'm going to pursue the comparative approach. I'm going to contrast wisdom with foolishness and try to understand the difference between right and wrong, between madness and folly. I'm going to try to perceive and understand completely the difference between right and wrong in the world. And there are plenty of people who think this way as well. Their general consensus is, well, life for me is just about finding the right path and then trying to be a good person, right? Just trying my best try and live my life that way and try and be a good person but the book of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us that that's going to be a, a dead end too because how do you know what good is? Who's for you to say what good is versus evil because if I call something evil that you call good who's right? You say well I'm just trying to be a good person but if, what if your being good is evil to me? Is that really the way to live life either? If there is no ultimate lawgiver, how can we say that anything is good or anything is evil? That's why the preacher says again, look, that too, in verse 17, is striving after wind. Emphasizing another proverb in verse 18, much wisdom, much vexation. The more knowledge you have, the more sorrowful you will feel. Now, what do we, what do, we do with this, right? Because... You've, you've got to have some endurance to make your way through this book. The preacher is saying here, for all of his power, for all of his position, for all of his advantages, uh, saying, I am like Solomon, he's just like a man who's chasing everything, but he's actually running around in his backyard, grasping at the air, clenching his fist, and then opening up and seeing that there's nothing there again and again and again and again and again his whole life long he finds that his hands are still empty and you know what that doesn't sound like good news right 
it certainly doesn't sound encouraging or helpful or instructive to us. And if it sounds hopeless, it's because it's supposed to, because the preacher is proving his point. Life is disordered, and we cannot, through our own ways, sort it out. The preacher is not offering quick fixes. His method for pointing us to God is by lingering with the skeptic, by being patient with the wounded, and the person who has far more questions than they have answers. And people like that make nice church people uncomfortable. The heavy skeptic, the wounded person, and the preacher sits down on a couch with them, if you like, without any spin and has an honest conversation about the ways of the world like I then tried to do with the president of the Atheist Club at Illinois College. I don't want to befriend this person. I don't want to get to know them. Ended up talking to Daniel for hours and hours and hours into late into the night on our mutual friend's uh, couch in his dorm room. And at the end of a long, long, long conversation, not trying to answer every objection or answer every question, just listening, I found that behind all of this really moral outrage about Christianity and about God and everything else was behind a very hardened exterior, someone who had been deeply wounded in so many ways and was looking for answers that they found uh, that they didn't even know the right questions to ask. There are no quick answers to the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes is asking. And that's why it is true that there is not enough wisdom to outsmart the curse of sin. It's not through human cunning and insight and wisdom. The hope of the Christian life is not that you're going to become smart enough to figure it out, not that you're going to outsmart the brokenness of the world, because if that were true, then you would boast in your own wisdom. If you said, I'm smart enough, I figured it all out, I've got it straight, you would boast in yourself. But human wisdom will only take us so far. So it doesn't matter how much philosophy you study. It doesn't matter how many comparative world religions you take yourself into and spirituality and self-help and personal fulfillment. It will all end in frustration to a human race bent inward on itself, insistent on exalting itself. The gospel comes as good news in the most surprising way because it turns wisdom upside down. If we think it's all about wisdom, the gospel says, no, it's not. It's not about human earthly wisdom. Listen to the way Paul summarizes it in 1 Corinthians. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. It is not in the search of human wisdom. In other words, you can't stockpile enough wisdom to save yourself and outsmart the brokenness of the world because you will find at the end you're just grasping into the air with empty hands. And when you finally figured that out, then you're ready to realize that that's the point of the gospel that you do have empty hands. That for all your grasping and for all your searching and realizing that you haven't held on to anything, it's because you're supposed to come to Christ with nothing in your hands saying, I don't have anything. Be merciful to me. 
the Lord Jesus, who is the true wisdom of God, and what seems like foolishness to human wisdom is actually God's perfect wisdom, the death and resurrection of his son. So what does that, what does that mean in final thought here? Because the preacher is going to keep us on this train where he says, first I'm going to try wisdom, and then you need to be prepared. He's going to try a couple other roads as well. And everyone is going to be a little bit different, but the conclusion is going to be the same. But it's exactly what Jesus says in John 16.33. If you want to make sense of the book of Ecclesiastes, listen to the way Jesus says this in John 16.33. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. In this world, you will have trouble. And the book of Ecclesiastes stops there and says, yeah, let's talk about the trouble. Trouble, trouble everywhere in this vain life. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you will have trouble. But what? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Beyond the trouble of this life is a Savior who redeems us from this life. So, dear friends, again, I implore you to have patience with this book, but also to walk the way of the preacher and find that he's telling you the truth and that it is wisdom for you to agree so that you would seek your only hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word and Lord, for all the vexation and frustration that we feel as we read these words. We remind ourselves, Lord, that it's true. And we confess the ways in which we have attempted to outsmart you, attempted to be our own God, attempted to pave our own way. Lord, we repent of those things and look only to the true wisdom that is your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that in him we find the fullness of our hope. Lord, we pray that not only for ourselves, but also for the good of our neighbors, our friends, our family members, who themselves are seeking true wisdom. Lord, may we be agents of light and peace to them, that they might find in Christ that wisdom as well. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.